Let me ask you, when was the last time you sang for someone? You grabbed your guitar, you sat down at the piano, you took the mic, and you just belted it out. And you were looking right at this person, and it didn't matter who else was in the room, it didn't matter how good or how bad your voice was, you were going to make sure that you expressed what was in your heart. Now, most of the time, or maybe the last time that many of us did this, it was probably early in the days that we were falling in love with someone, and we used a song to express our feelings for that person. We put our words to song to show our love for that person. I know many of us now, particularly those with young kids, we also sing to our kids, right? Sometimes we sing to them to help them settle down, or we sing to them to make them embarrassed in front of their, ki- their friends, just to show how much we love them and how much we care for them. The thing that I want you to walk away with this morning, more than anything else, is what Zephaniah tells us about God. God exults over you with loud singing. Now tell me, be honest. If someone asked you to describe God, is that the first thing you would have gone to? Is that even the second or the top five, the top ten? If you were asked to describe God, would you describe him as a God who sings over you? That's often foreign to the way that we think about God, even as believers. But do you also know that it's foreign to the way that other cultures think about their gods? He is not the impersonal, ultimate reality of Hinduism. He's not the non-relational Allah of Islam. The God of the Bible sings. And He sings over His people. Now that in and of itself is amazing, mind-blowing. Something that we should just meditate on for hours. But what I want you to also see is that this amazing description of the God who sings with joy and love over his people is also found, this prophecy, it's found within a prophecy of judgment. Zephaniah is not a happy book. Zephaniah is a book of curses that are laid out against Israel. And so God's song of delight comes within a prophecy of judgment. Do you remember who Zephaniah is? Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Now, if you are the Bible trivia champion in your house, you might remember that King Josiah was, one of, was the last good king of Judah. After the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, Josiah was the last good king of Judah, and he became king when he was eight years old. Boys and girls, are there any kids that are about eight years old here this morning? Can you imagine being a king or a queen when you are just eight years old? Well, during Josiah's reign, some good things happened. The law of God was rediscovered. Josiah led the nation in a short period of revival where the worship of the temple was purified and the people began following after God after many, many years of rebellion. 
Most scholars think that Zephaniah probably prophesied at the very beginning of Josiah's reign. Maybe before the law was rediscovered. Maybe before the revival began. Because that's because the first part of his prophecy is filled with judgment. If you have your Bibles, you can actually even turn over to Zephaniah chapter 1. And you can see how he talks about the problems that Israel is facing. They had corrupted the worship of God by worshiping false, uh, false gods in the temple. They had sacrificed their children to Molech. If you look at the end of verse 5, you see they yet swear by Milcom. That's another, that's another word for the god Molech. And the way that you worshipped Molech, the way that you swore by his name was by offering your children as child sacrifices. They engaged in ritual persecution as they worshipped the gods Baal. They were violent, Zephaniah says. They were fraudulent. They were prideful. And they were unbelieving on top of it all. In chapter 2, Zephaniah comes to the people and says, you need to repent before the judgment of God is poured out on you. Before the decree of judgment takes effect. But then in chapter 3, this passage that we just read, you have this promise of restoration. Of God singing for joy over the people, the very people he threatened with judgment. He says he's going to rescue them and redeem them. What do you do with that tension? What do you do with that tension between a singing God and a judging God? We generally have a hard time reconciling God's judgment and God's joy. But God's justice is not incompatible with his joy. He judges, he acts with justice in order to protect his joy. And to protect your joy, the joy of his people. Think about this with me. Our joy is threatened by evil. The evil that we can find in ourselves, as well as the evil that is out there. When we find that evil, or when we discover that evil, we long to protect our joy. This is why we cry out for justice when we've been harmed. This is why we long for vindication when we have been wronged. This is why with tears in our eyes, we so often call out to God, How long, O Lord? How long until you come back to reestablish justice and righteousness in the land? I think it was Zephaniah's message of judgment along with the rediscovery of the Mosaic Law that helped spur the people of God toward repentance. And for several decades it worked. Because Josiah led the nation of Judah in repentance, in rediscovering the law, in uh, reestablishing the worship of God, God did not pour out his judgments on Judah. This is part of what I think Zephaniah is referring to in verse 20 when he says that these things will happen before your eyes. The people saw God turn. They saw God turn and relent from pouring out his judgment. 
The curse that was promised because of sin has been, if not reversed completely, it's at least been delayed for a season. But, like all kings, like all queens, like all men, women, and children, eventually good King Josiah died. And then his sons did evil in the sight of the Lord, generation after generation after generation. And the judgments that were once delayed descended quickly on the people of God. Isn't that interesting? Don't you understand the implication for you and me? If sinners like you and me are always liable to judgment, if we're just one good king away from the judgment of God falling on us, then what hope is there that we'll ever hear this joyful song of God? Well, that tension is ultimately resolved at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus' atoning death delivers an unrighteous people from their sin. From before time began, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted together to rescue their people from the consequences of their sin. This is part of why Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that it was because of the joy that was set before Him that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. It was the joy that, G- that God sings over His people. He exults over them with loud singing, with joy. It was the joy that was held out to Jesus that allowed Him to suffer the consequences of our sin. Friends, the song of God will not be silenced, not even by our sin. Instead, He promises that He will install a new king in our midst. John 1 tells us that new king tabernacled among us. He, verse 17, is the mighty one who will save. He, verse 19, is the one who will save the lame, gather up the outcasts, and turn their shame into praise. Eric, this is very interesting, but I'm not exactly sure where you're driving with this. this. What does it matter That God sings over me with joy. Well, I don't know about you, but when we talk about God's love, it's easy for me in an academic way to say, yes, God loves me, but sometimes I struggle to believe that God actually likes me. Is that true of you? Mostly, I think he kind of puts up with me. I know God is supposed to love me, It's in the job description for God, right? But it's hard for me to imagine him delighting in me, like Zephaniah 3 says, rejoicing and exulting over me. I want you to think back for a second from when you were a kid. Uh, Hopefully, all of you knew that your parents loved you, but weren't there times when you were just a little jerk? And your parents probably wanted to leave you on the side of the road? Or is that just me? You can ask my mom and dad. They're sitting here this morning. Sometimes love is more of a responsibility 
than it is an emotion, right? And that can often bleed over to our conception of God. Yeah, God loved me by forgiving my sins, but what does God think of me? What emotion does God feel when he thinks of me? I think many of our struggles in our faith can be traced to this issue. If God's love for us is merely an official stance that he must take, and if we secretly think that God doesn't really like us, we are going to be slow to pray. We are going to be quick to question God's goodness when bad things happen in our lives. We will fall prey more easily to all of the false gods that we have established in our lives, idols that promise us power and comfort and control, because we don't really think that the true God is for us. Our view of God greatly determines the way that we live. If we see God as a sort of cosmic police officer, we're always going to live in fear of punishment. If we see God as a kind of divine vending machine, we're always going to, or we'll only talk to him when we need something. But if God, in the words of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15, if God is the one who has taken away the judgments against you, and he has done that by suffering the cost of sin himself, and then he turns and sings in delight over the ones that he has saved. Oh, friends, that should make a difference in the way we think about ourselves. That should make a difference in the way that we think about God. That should make a difference in the way that we live in this world. That difference, I think, is seen in verse 14 of Zephaniah's prophecy, where Zephaniah tells the people of Israel, Sing! Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart. You see, friends, because the Lord has joy over us, we should in turn be a joyful people. I think that echoes the reading from Philippians that we heard this morning. Philippians chapter 4, where Paul commands the church, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let me ask you, are you a joyful person? Are you a joyful person? Or are you quickly irritated by the people around you? Do you find yourself quick to praise others? To exult over others? Or are you instead quick to criticize? To find fault? Make no mistake. What we believe about God will affect the way that we act in this life. The Lord has so loved you that he has given you his only son. Jesus became flesh for you. He suffered all the limitations and frustrations of life for you. He was hated and opposed for you. He was arrested and tried and mocked and beaten for you. He was sent to the cross 
for you. He came for you and he will never leave you. This is why Christians, of all people, should be the most joyful. Friends, if any of this was left up to us, if any of this was left up to us, if our health, if our well-being, if our Christian life was left up to us, we are of all men most to be pitied. We might as well turn off the lights and go home. But the entire point of this passage is that God has not and God will not give up on you. He will do what it takes to rescue you and redeem you from sin. Now, Eric, I want to believe this. I wish that I could believe this. But here's my problem. God really knew me, he wouldn't sing over me. I know myself. I know my own shame. I know my own failings. How can God like me when so often I don't like myself? When I have to hide who I really am from the people who are closest to me. Well, yesterday, I had the opportunity to officiate my fifth wedding of the year. And as I stood behind our friends Trevor and Kina, and I saw the joy that radiated from both of them, it reminded me of this passage. It reminded me also of a very similar passage in Isaiah chapter 62, where God describes himself as a groom who sings with joy over his bride. Now, if you're married here this morning, you know that sometimes your joy in your spouse, it ebbs and flows, right? Sometimes you are more joyful, sometimes less joyful. And especially the longer that we live in marriage, the better that we know our spouses and the better that they know us. But God promises that nothing he discovers about you will dampen his joy in you. Listen to how J.I. Packer puts it in his classic book, Knowing God. There is tremendous relief, Packer says. Tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. Nothing that he finds out will quench his determination to bless me, Packer writes. Friends, your God sings. He sings over you, knowing you from before you were born, knowing every hair on your head every day of your life, all of your joys and victories, all of your sins and sorrows. He sings over you. Because he knows that his work for you will be efficient. 
it will accomplish what he has set out to do. And he sings over you so that you can follow his voice home. Let's pray. Father, may we hear that voice, the voice of your own joy in us, rebels, enemies of God, whom you have made your friends. Father, fill our hearts with the joy that you feel toward us and change us, O God, so that we bend more and more to reflect that joy, not only to our own doubting hearts, but to the people around us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.